Hey folks, Preet here. This week on Cafe Insider, Joyce and I are joined by a special guest to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term, which started this past Monday. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the court and the law for Slate, where she's a senior editor. She also hosts the award-winning legal podcast, Amicus, and she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. As we gear up for yet another consequential term, Dahlia, Joyce, and I break down the biggest cases before the high court. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. Before we get to that, however, a quick reminder that Stay Tuned is nominated for a Signal Award. It's very exciting, but we need your help to win. Head to cafe.com signal to make your vote count. And now on to our discussion about the Supreme Court. This case called United States v. Rahimi, which is colored by the fact that there was a prior case in recent times, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, Bruin, that has a holding that is causing judges around the country to rethink various gun regulations. And the matter in Rahimi relates to the statute that we've talked about a lot on the show, 922G. 922G relates to the possession of a firearm. And in certain circumstances, that possession, in conjunction with some other attribute or condition, makes it a felony to possess that firearm. And the one at issue now in this case that we're talking about today relates to possession of firearms by people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders. Does that violate the Second Amendment or not to take the gun away from somebody who has a domestic violence restraining order? It seems common sense would dictate that's totally reasonable. What's, what's, why is it not per the Supreme Court in all likelihood? I think to the extent that there is an overarching theme this term, and it, by the way, was an overarching theme last term, I think the term of art is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is absolutely bonkers, right? That is the theme. And a lot of the cases that we're going to talk about come about because there is one nutter judge on the Fifth Circuit, which is kind of known as the most conservative federal circuit and huge number of Donald Trump appointees all trying to distinguish themselves. And we have judges on the Fifth Circuit who are pushing, pushing, pushing from below and saying to the court, because you did X, we're going to push you to expand and amplify X, right? And that's a huge ongoing theme. And last term, just very quickly, we saw the court devoting an immense amount of time to the kind of cleanup on aisle four jurisprudence, which is like, no, you went too far. No, you went too far. No, you went too far. And and kind of bapping the Fifth Circuit on the nose, right? So this is another one of those. This is a case, as you've just said, where we have somebody who just horrible, violent abuse of his domestic partner, the mother of his child, witnessed in a parking lot, smashing her head against a dashboard, in possession of a gun, despite this restraining order. And the Fifth Circuit looks at Zaki Rahimi and says, this is our poster boy for who we want to expand the holding in Bruin. And what we want to say is that the the logic of Bruin, and that's the gun case you just referenced, is that if there's not an analogous statute or right from either the time of, you know, the framing or the 14th Amendment, 
then it must fall. Whatever this gun regulation is, it must fall. And since domestic violence wasn't a thing in the 19th century, in the 18th century, uh, in fact, it was a privilege, right? It was very much a right to smash your partner. It was legal to beat your wife in every state at the founding. Am I correct? Right. Yeah. So so the, the theory goes... Under that logic, if there's no analogous statute, then removing guns from felons who have beaten their partner has to be unconstitutional. So this is an effort to push from below and to have a lower court say to the court, now you have to expand Bruin. And the only other thing I want to say about this, because it's important, is we've actually seen liberal judges doing the same thing in the intervening time since Bruin. We've seen liberal judges saying, dude, I'm no historian. I have no freaking idea. But I set my law clerks to work and there is no analogous statute that says that you can't saw the serial number off a gun because there were no serial numbers on guns. So I guess I have to uphold this too. So it is happening from both sides where judges who are faced with this ridiculous historical analogy test are striking down all kinds of gun regulation. So that really the only question, Preet, I think in Rahimi is whether you're going to get five justices and, and then let's just say it out loud. You know, the chance of being killed by your domestic partner if they have a gun is exponentially higher than than not in, in domestic violence cases. So so the court is just going to decide whether there are five votes to stick to this historical test that will invalidate most gun regulations that now exist. So that's the question I have for you, because I I see this as being a case where, to use a tired phrase, you know, the justices are sort of hoisted upon their own petard, right? I mean, they've set this problem up with their ruling in Bruin. This is something that they certainly have to have foreseen. And my question for you is this, is there a narrow avenue that the justices can walk to save criminal gun laws without saying, you know, we made a big mistake in Bruin and we need to walk it back? I think there is. I think that one of the issues in this case is it's a civil adjudication, right? The the domestic violence restraining order. And so there is a way, I suppose, to say, oh, well, you know, it would be different if there were a criminal adjudication of future dangerousness as opposed to a civil one. And I think that is one that might get an extra vote or two. So that probably is the way to narrow it. But I think on this larger issue of what did the court unleash in Bruin and, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, who loves to write these concurrences that say, but by no means would we allow for something crazy, right? That was his concurrence in Dobbs. And then the next day, the crazy thing happens. So I think in some sense, you're exactly right that this is kind of the court like living in the reality that it created. But I think that there's another theme here that's super important and maybe the best example of that, if not Rahimi, is, you know, Alabama refusing to draw new maps earlier this month, you know, after the court explicitly in Allen versus Milligan says, draw a second district, right, to reflect the population of your state. And Alabama just saying, nah, I don't think so. So the theme I want to pull here that scares me a little bit is that this big 
nullification, this choice to look at what the Supreme Court says and ignore it, whether it's coming from a district court judge or the Fifth Circuit or a state legislature. Mark Elias said on my show a few weeks ago, and it chilled me to the bone, Joyce, he said the lawlessness and the refusal to abide by the Supreme Court's orders, in a sense, is becoming a currency of its own. And isn't that true? I mean, I I see that same thing, that the Supreme Court is willing to fritter away some of its own power in the sake of advancing an ideological agenda. And maybe that's an unduly cynical point of view. I mean, I'm an appellate lawyer at heart. I am used to having deep respect for the courts in this country, but especially for the Supreme Court. And so I find it to be almost painful to be in this position. But the Alabama case is, I think, a good example. One hopes the Supreme Court will say, Alabama, we we said what we said. We meant it. You must follow our rulings. But here in Bruin, I think one risk is that if they want to preserve the criminal aspects of what's a very serious issue in this country, then they do so at the expense of some of their own legitimacy in the earlier ruling in Bruin, which is, in my judgment, a bad ruling, something Preet and I have talked a lot about, something that you touch on here, but it is nonetheless their decision. To the extent that John Roberts has regained control of his court, and I and I do think that is the overarching story of last term, I think that he is sensitive to that, and probably Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh are sensitive to that. To, to the fact that they absolutely squandered hard-earned political capital in one term. <laughs> and I think that the reason the court, and I don't want to say it swung back to moderate last term because I, I just think, you know, the minute you accept the independent state legislature theory case, right, the minute you accept the affirmative action case right after it has already been decided. You know, everything on the docket last term and this term is a deliberate set of choices to continue my lab experiment analogy to have these seven test tubes, right, as the thing that everybody's going to pour over. So they have absolute discretion over their docket. They grant crazy cases. And then when they say, oh, actually, you know, the state of North Carolina cannot argue that judges can't oversee election protocols, right? That's the independent state legislature theory. The country is like, sigh of relief, right? They didn't burn it all down. But I just want to keep saying, and I think you've just said it, the choice to not burn it all down isn't a win for moderation. It's a win for the optics of moderation. Can I ask you a question? This test that we talk about, and in this particular context, we're talking about it with respect to the Second Amendment, that in order for there to be a certain kind of regulation, there has to have been some analog to it back at the founding. And in this case, it's particularly bizarre, given that you're talking about domestic violence prevention. And it was, you know, women couldn't vote when this nation began, and it was legal to beat your wife in every state in the union when this nation began. But this you know, tradition and precedent test, does it extend beyond the Second Amendment? How else is it going to affect courts' cases going forward? Well, I mean, we're certainly seeing it. First of all, we see it in Dobbs, right? This is the analysis that Justice Alito uses to overturn Roe, right? And we're going to 
to the extent that Clarence Thomas in his concurrence famously in Roe said, I'm just going to spell it all out there. <laughs> you know, here's what I'm coming for next. And it's Obergefell, right? Uh, marriage equality and it's birth control. I mean, I think that we know what happens if you apply this strict text in history test to any kind of of the modern mores and values and rights that have evolved over the centuries. So I think there's no question in my mind, if you look at, you know, efforts in the states to further cabin, whether it's birth control, whether it's rules that are regulating, you know, how transgender kids can access medical services, whether it's IVF or whatever it is, I think there's a whole host of issues that the courts are coming for using this test. I mean, the other cases we we should talk about are all of these efforts to end the administrative state, right? There's three major cases on the docket, one of which was heard this morning that would do away with the CFPB. And a lot of that dips into this notion of text and history. You know, this is how you could finance a federal agency, you know, because it's not done through appropriations. It's done through the Federal Reserve. It's clearly unconstitutional. So I think you can continue to use these arguments about text and history and the original meaning, blah, 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 to pretty much do away not just with, you know, I think what Elena Kagan has described as like most of government, which is really what I think is in the crosshairs this term. But I think you can certainly say that if you keep applying these rigid historical analogy tests, you can get rid of systematically that whole laundry list of of rights that Justice Thomas set forth in his concurrence in Dobbs. Yeah, look at Steve Bannon's dream come true, right? Deconstruction of the administrative state being accomplished through Donald Trump's three choices for the Supreme Court. Right. And this was Don McGahn's speech, right? This was Don McGahn, uh, White House counsel's famous speech where he said... There is a coherent plan here where actually the judicial selection and the and the, and the deregulatory effort are really the flip side of the same coin. The deregulatory agenda, getting rid of federal agencies, is directly connected. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode and access all exclusive insider content, consider becoming a member. Head to cafe.com slash insider to try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Mm-hmm.